Well, good morning once again. How about we pray as we look into this passage? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have written. We thank you, Lord, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all those things. Uh, Lord, we give you praise that we've got a, a Bible in our own language that we can read. So, Lord, as we read it, help us to understand it this morning and help us, Lord, to live in light of what we learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Dave alluded to before we read the Bible, we finished our series on the book of Ephesians, but there's plenty more things we could look at. I'm just going to spend this week, though, looking at where it all began. We've looked at all sorts of things through chapter 1 to chapter 6, all in the book of Ephesians, but how did the church start? Uh, well, it started because Paul went there as a missionary. If you look on our next slide, you'll see this is what it looks like today. It's just a heap of ruins. There's not much of it left. Uh, but it gives you the idea that in Paul's day, this was a bustling city. It was a big place, even bigger than Griffith, if you can imagine such a place. He went there to share the gospel as a missionary. And as he went, we are going to see a little bit of his experiences in Ephesus uh, all those years ago. And it's something that I think is good for us as we look at this passage today to see what we should expect as we share the gospel, whether we're full-time in ministry like me, whether we're as missionaries overseas somewhere, or whether we just live our own lives here in Griffith and talk to our friends and neighbours. I think what we're going to see is this. As we see Paul's example, Paul tells the people in Ephesus that their gods are no gods at all. Um, then, obviously, there's no change in the people's attitudes. They're still pretty hostile. Uh, but it's interesting that they've actually got no reason to be like that. And despite all this, all the hostilities that Paul encounters, there's still no compromise on his message. So let's look at this together. Firstly, there's no gods. Now, the bulletin has a bit of a typo. It says no capital G-O-D apostrophe S. It should be G-O-D-S in small letters. But anyway, the idea is that uh, we see in verse 23, there's a great disturbance about the way. And you might wonder what this is all about. Perhaps it's a bit like Star Wars, where there's a great disturbance in the force as if millions of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. But that's not what Paul means. Paul's talking about the way, not the force. And the way is something that through the book of Acts we see is people who follow Jesus. It's Christianity before it was called Christianity. Uh, before there was this hard divide between Christians and Jews, there were Jews who started following Jesus and they said, well, we're still Jews. What do we call ourselves? And, well, uh, I'm following the way. Jesus himself said that he was the way, the truth and the life. So it makes sense. If you're on the way, you're following the way, you're following Jesus. So in Acts 9.2, we see that Paul's on his way to Damascus. Uh, he's going there to persecute Christians, as we call them today. But in his day, he's there to find those who belong to the way, whether men or women, and he's going to take them back as prisoners. They're under arrest for following Jesus. 
In Acts 19, the beginning of this chapter that we read a bit from, Paul meets with people who were in the synagogue in Ephesus. Again, the same city we're talking about. Uh, Things are going pretty well as he starts explaining what's going on until some of the Jews there maligned, as in spoke badly about, the way, as in what Paul is saying, following Jesus. So the way is people who follow Jesus. It's Christianity by another name. And so here in verse 23, the problem seems to be that this Christian movement, this thing, the way, is causing trouble in Ephesus. And we get to the root of the problem as we look further in. There's a guy called Demetrius. Now, Demetrius makes shrines to the Greek god Artemis. And he stirs up a bit of trouble because he realises that if he can get all of his metalworking friends together, form some sort of like a guild or trade union almost of fellow metalworkers, he can have some influence on this city. And what he wants is he, he wants to keep his job. He wants to keep his good income from this business. You see, Demetrius knows that if everybody stops worshipping Artemis, if everyone starts following the way, then he's out of a job because he makes silver shrines for the goddess. If you want to worship Artemis, you could buy a silver shrine from Demetrius, one of his mates, and you put it in your house and you can worship Artemis in your own home. But if no one worships Artemis, then there's no silver shrines. And if there's no silver shrines, then there's no money. And if there's no money, well, poor old Demetrius is going to have to find another job. So this is a problem. And so Demetrius starts what we might call a riot. It's quite a mess. If you want to rile people up, uh, just do something that's going to hurt their hip pocket. And not that they had hip pockets back then, but I digress. Their livelihood's at stake. People realise that following Jesus is going to have some sort of repercussion on their lives. It's going to affect everything about this Demetrius's life. And he doesn't like it. He's confronted with the fact that if he follows Jesus... It's going to affect his bottom line. His business would probably go under. And he says, no, 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 no. We can't have that. I need this money. I need this job. I'm going to keep making these silver shrines, so I'm going to do everything in my power to stop people following the way. It challenges his and other people's most firmly held fundamental beliefs And so, as we see on our next slide, uh, one of the more contemporary authors, Douglas Murray, has written this great book about the madness of crowds. Uh, And he says, if two people are in a disagreement about something important, they may disagree as amicably if they like, if it's just a matter of getting to the truth or the most amenable option. But if one party finds their whole purpose in life to reside in some aspect of that disagreement then the chances of amicably, uh, the chances of it uh, reduced, uh, I can't read today, sorry. The chances of amicability fade fast and the likelihood of reaching any truth recedes. Now he's wordy. Douglas, he likes to write in a wordy sort of flamboyant manner. But his point is this. If we disagree about something that is someone's most firmly held beliefs, something that they love deeply, then it's unlikely that our disagreement is going to be resolved amicably. This seems to be the case in Ephesus. 
People have been challenged about their most deeply held beliefs. Uh, They are convinced that Artemis is the god for their town. Yet here, these Christians are telling them otherwise, and it's going to affect their lives. Well, we can't have that, they say. Telling the Ephesians that Artemis is no god at all is the root of the problem. It seems to be that what Paul has said is, in fact, that it's not just, hey, here's another god, you should worship this one, not that one. I mean, that's kind of offensive. But what Paul says is, no, 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 that great big statue you've got, those silver shrines and everything that you're producing, well, that's not a god at all. Artemis is no god at all. In fact, none of your other idols are either. Uh, Telling the Ephesians that what they deeply held uh, is in fact wrong and that what they think are gods are no gods at all is offensive. In our day and age, you'd probably be charged with hate speech or something. But it's the very reason that Paul is in Ephesus to tell these people who don't yet know Jesus that in fact they're wrong, that what they worship are not gods. Uh, Their whole world would be turned upside down. And it may seem as though this is an offensive message, and it is, but it's right through Scripture. There are no gods but one. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 makes it very clear. Uh, There are no gods, no images of gods permitted either. Uh, Don't make an idol and worship that. Uh, Isaiah 44, 11. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Uh, as if you could make an idol yourself. You'd fashion it and then claim that it's a god, which is a funny thing to do because you just made it out of wood or clay or something. Uh, How could something that you made be a god? Well, that's not unusual, is it? But in Jeremiah 10.5, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. What kind of God is that? It doesn't move, doesn't speak, doesn't do anything. It just kind of stands there like a scarecrow. You wouldn't want to worship a scarecrow, would you? Again, Acts 17:29, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and design. This is Paul again preaching in a different town in Athens. And the gospel makes this very clear, this demand that there is but one God. You can't pick and choose. You can't decide that an idol is God or that some other thing is God. There is one God. And if you worship anything else, then you're not worshipping him. The gospel is offensive to some. And this is the problem that Paul has found in Ephesus. It's going to affect their whole lives. The whole culture of the place is going to change. As people give their lives to Jesus, other people are going to stop worshipping Artemis and this guy Demetrius will be out of work. But this is the nature of the gospel. It is going to affect our whole lives, even our livelihoods, depending on what we might do for work. So this is Paul's message. There are no gods which then leads to the problem, the riot. And so there's no change, though, if you look at the next bit. They start out by shouting really loudly in verse 28. They hear the implications of what's going on, and they start 
kind of having this giant uproar in the town, right? They're, they're yelling and screaming and carrying on because they think that it's going to be a big problem. Just imagine going to Melbourne and telling the people that following Jesus means you can't now play AFL, right? We're almost at that level here in Ephesus, right? You're probably going to cause a bit of a scene. That's okay, AFL's all right, don't worry. Now things are getting tense though because they start this riot and then they sort of don't know what they're doing. They kind of start a big problem and then they don't know what, how to fix it. They're in a real mess. Uh, they, they kind of drag these two other Christians, Aristarchus and Gaius, into the theatre uh, and then they're kind of having this meeting about what to do. And then comes one of my favourite verses and it, I loved quoting this at any Presbyterian meetings because we call them assembly. Verse 32, they've been riled and whipped up and the whole assembly doesn't even know what they're doing. One person's shouting and screaming and verse 32, it's great. They've effectively now got two hostages, these other two guys that they've brought in, uh, and still there's no change. They, they hear Paul and they get upset and they start a riot and then they take some hostages and they're still not sure what to do. The assembly's in chaos and then they decide, oh, we'll get this guy Alexander up as our kind of spokesman or as our leader. Until they realise Alexander is a Jew. And then they go, oh, what have we done? You know, you've, you've appointed this guy to kind of lead the riot in honour of Artemis, only to discover that he worships the one true God, not your God. Such is the madness of crowds, though. This is the point. It's insanity at the highest order. They're, they're whipped into a frenzy and then they don't know what to do. And so there's no change. There's no change in circumstances because they don't want to stop worshipping Artemis. They started a riot and they don't want to stop. There's no change in attitude in the crowd. They're still in a frenzy. Two hours later, they're still yelling and screaming. The whole event right through is meant to be kind of comedic because it starts with the crowd having this great riot and then they descend into absolute chaos. No one knows what's going on. And the solution to the problem is to try and get this guy who's not even a, a Gentile to lead the crowd. And then they realise he's a Jew and then they're seriously confused. And finally they've resolved, this is what we need to do, yell and scream some more. That will fix it. I guarantee if you look at this whole thing, it starts with the crowd shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians descends into absolute chaos and finishes with them still shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There's no change, but that's because they have no reason. And I use reason in two ways here. Uh, reason in that they've got no good excuse for their rioting, and that comes out in a passage, but it's also they've got no reason in that they've no capacity to think. So they're angry, they're upset, they, they're offended, which is what we might say today. But why? I, I don't even think they know why. They don't seem capable of reason at this point. It's not as if Paul could sit them down and say, now let's be reasonable. They're way beyond reason at this stage. But I think it's not necessarily just in this circumstance. I think this is true, as the Bible tells us, of all non-Christians. They're actually not able to use their reason. 
Uh, we see from Romans 1, 18 to 23, uh, Romans 1 tells us that people have rejected knowledge of God and what do they do instead? They exchange worshipping him for worshipping other things, idols. And so what does God do? He gives them over to a depraved mind. So they're unable to think as God wants them to think. We see elsewhere that they're just unable to do what we would think they can do. I remember in Ephesians 2 that they're dead in their sins and transgressions. Uh, now they, they're just unable to know truth from error, incapable of even thinking correctly. Such is the effect of sin and the fall that our minds are messed up. We can't think properly. And we see this in our passage. Uh, they really don't know what they're doing, but they're going to do it anyway. Uh, they've appointed a guy who's really not going to be much of a leader because he doesn't even worship Artemis. They've shouted themselves into a frenzy, and then the solution to the problem is to just shout more. Uh, they're way beyond reason, and this is why. They're non-Christians. They're not able to. Dead people are not known for their capacity for reason, nor are people who have been given over to a depraved mind. It's like they're not able to. And that's why they need Jesus. And that's why Paul went there. That's why Paul shares the gospel with them, because he knows that this is true for them. I mean, it's, it's obvious that these people don't know what they're doing. And that's why they need Jesus. Because once they have Jesus, once they've indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then they can reason. Then they are able to think clearly. But until then, there's no way they're going to get anywhere. So then finally, after a bit of a, a riot, you know, it's, only a, it's a mostly peaceful protest, we might call it these days, uh, the clerk of the assembly seems to get up and he's got a pretty good idea. What he'll do is he'll pander to them. The crowd are really whipped up at this stage. And so his speech goes like this. I mean, it's obvious, people. Everybody knows Artemis is great, right? We all know that. And this city, it's special, isn't it? Because we are the custodians of this wonderful statue, Artemis. Isn't she great? I mean, just look at her. Imagine worshipping anybody else. Now, not only that, but this image of Artemis fell down from heaven to us. It's not as if someone made it. It just appeared miraculously from heaven and we built this temple around it, didn't we? And the whole crowd, yeah, Artemis. And so the clerk's thinking he's doing pretty well here. Now, we all know how great Artemis is, and we've been shouting it for two hours or so now. Um, don't worry about Paul. It's obvious. Anybody with half a brain would know how good Artemis is. There's no need to yell it anymore. Everybody is already convinced, aren't we all? Everyone's, yeah, we're convinced. And the clerk of the assembly is pointing out the most insane, nonsensical things but it helps because the crowd are all now on his side. They agree with him. Yeah, Artemis. And so it sounds a bit silly, really, as if this thing fell from heaven. It's just impossible. 
But of course, they think that it did, so he's on their side, and they're on his side. So he can kind of calm them down. And eventually, he makes a pretty good case for the... They've got no reason to be rioting, really, and it's probably time to stop. You know, you, you don't need to convince me, you don't need to convince anybody. It's self-evident that Artemis is, of course, great. So let's all just go home and ignore Paul, because what would he know anyway, right? It sounds really silly, but history has been here before, and I'd say in many ways our society is here even today. Affirming the most nonsensical things just to keep a few people on side. Now, everybody knows the Earth is flat. That's why when you sail west from Europe, you don't come back because you fall off the edge of the Earth. I mean, everybody knows that. It's just self-evident. I don't need to convince anybody. Everybody knows that the trees cause the wind. It's self-evident. The more the branches move, the stronger the wind is. When the branches move a little bit, there's a gentle breeze. When the branches move a whole lot, it's caused a gale. Everybody knows the trans women are women, even though we don't know what a woman is. And everybody in the crowd would shout, yeah, we agree. Now, I sympathise with people who do struggle with thinking about these things. Uh, the human mind is a complicated thing. People do struggle with their sexuality and their identity, and I don't want to belittle them. But the Bible is teaching us that we can't actually think straight without Jesus. Without knowing Jesus, we're not actually capable of reason. And so we just affirm nonsense to pander to whatever the crowd around us is saying. Well, anyway, the speech about Artemis seems to have done the trick and the Ephesians eventually go home. Uh, you know, basically, if anybody's got a real grievance, you could press charges and they all sort of go, oh, well, probably too much hard work, you know, going to the courts, lodging an appeal or something. It's all very hard. They decide they're not interested. But it's funny, for all this talk of how great Artemis of the Ephesians is, Look around today, 2,000 years later. Which God's being worshipped? How many shrines and temples to Artemis do we see around the place? None. The only ones that we find are buried under 2,000 years of dirt because it's been about that long since anybody's worshipped her. You've got to really dig hard to find an idol of Artemis to worship. Yet look around and where are the churches? all over the place. People are worshipping Jesus 2,000 years later. How many people worship Artemis? Probably none. It's clear, though, that Artemis really wasn't that great. Uh, it might have appeared to be to the Ephesians at the time, but Paul has gone there to tell them that she isn't. And even though it's offensive and even though it caused a riot, not everybody did, did they? Because Paul started a church there. In the midst of the chaos, there were some believers. And they were the ones that Paul then wrote the letter to. And not only that, but later on he sends Timothy there, and you can read that in uh, 1 Timothy. He's committed to this place, to this city, to this church. And after Timothy, many years later, of course, we wind up with the Apostle John, who's in Ephesus. There's a long history of Christians serving the Lord, serving God's people, sharing their faith in the city of Ephesus. 
the very place where everybody started a riot and tried to get rid of the gospel was a place that thrived and flourished with the gospel. Paul did not compromise on his message. And it started a riot, but you know what? It also started a church. The same thing could well happen with us today. It may or may not start a riot. Probably not going to happen here in Griffith, but it will in other parts of the world. So what should we do? Just avoid some of the more difficult passages? Just try not to be offensive? Well, there's something good about that. The gospel in and of itself is offensive enough. We don't want to be deliberately antagonistic. But if we simply set forth the truth that what you're currently worshipping is not a god and you need to worship the one true god, well, that's offensive enough already. So we shouldn't avoid saying that by no means. We don't want to compromise on the good news of the gospel. Now, as we look around our world, I think we're going to find more and more people are happy to compromise on Jesus, happy to compromise on the message of the gospel. To be a Christian is just to kind of love your neighbour as yourself. That's all. Love is love after all. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to upset people. We don't want to cause a riot anywhere. And while that may be true, we also don't want people to go to hell. So there can't be any compromise on the message. No matter how unpopular it may be, God has his people, even in the hardest of mission fields, places that are almost impossible in our minds, God has his people there, no doubt. Uh, Jesus really is the one true God, and we need to worship him. In fact, everyone on earth needs to worship him, and he's really the only one who can fix our reasoning anyway. Without him, we're lost. Without Jesus, no one can come to the Father. No one can have eternal life, no matter how hard they try, no matter how clever they might be, no matter how affirming of the society around them might be. There is no chance of coming to know God the Father without Jesus. So while we can be flexible about exactly who we speak to and how we want to go about it, what we can't compromise on is what we say. We're following in Paul's example here. It it may be difficult at times. We might encounter opposition, as Paul did. But the message is clear that there should be no compromise. As Christians, that's our job, to let people know that what they're actually doing is wrong. Turn away from sin. Turn to Jesus. And while, again, we can be flexible about how we do it, we can't be flexible on the fact that we have to do it. So it's really Jesus who's going to fix all these problems. Jesus is the one true God that our culture needs. Uh, Jesus is the one who really does change us. Jesus is the one who really does fix our ability to reason and think. So really, our message has to all be about him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul in Ephesus. Thank you that he did not compromise on the good news. And Lord, may we be prepared to do likewise. Thank you that Jesus is the one who fixes our ability to think, who changes us, who really is God. And Lord, may we ever be ready to tell other people these great truths. Amen.